This show is brought to you by Boise State Public Radio in Idaho, along with the Mountain West News Bureau, a public media collaboration. It's 5.30 in the morning, and already the sage grouse are taking positions on the leg, starting to strut and display and call out, even though the first rays of dawn haven't yet brightened the sky in the east. Anybody who's ever been to a singles bar will recognize this scene. The males are puffing out their chests, strutting around, trying to catch the female's eye. And this is what their pickup line sounds like. My name's Ashley Ahern, and this is Grouse, a show about the most controversial bird in the West and what it's taught me about hope, compromise, and life in rural America. Today, compromise. An agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. But there's also a second definition. In the verb form, to compromise means to accept standards that are lower than is desirable two sides of the same coin, right? I've covered a lot of compromises and negotiations in my time reporting on the environment. Issues where parties with different interests have to come together to find common ground about how to manage a threatened animal or a habitat, take orcas or salmon or old growth forests, for example. So I'd get these press releases after the latest negotiation around X environmental issue, and it would read something like this. A diverse group of stakeholders came together, found common ground, had a place at the table, and we've all compromised, and here's what we've come out with. Or something along those lines. It's a nice press release, right? It makes everyone feel good. But inevitably, when everyone has a different set of needs, they don't get everything they want, right? The Venn diagram, the overlap between all of their interests and what they can agree upon, becomes smaller and smaller the more parties you have involved. And I've been thinking a lot about that image when it comes to how we manage sage-grouse. With all the different parties that want a piece of sagebrush country, whether it's oil and gas companies that want more access to land for drilling, or ranchers who want more land for grazing, or hunters or hikers and recreational interests, where does the bird fit in? How do you ensure when these collaborative conservation agreements are hammered out, how do you make sure the bird comes out the winner? If the goal is indeed to keep this bird around. So when it comes to thorny issues and what we do collectively in the face of large problems, whether we're talking about climate change or the potential loss of sage-grouse in the West, I want to believe that compromise is possible and effective. But after taking a close look at the compromises that have been made around sage-grouse management in the past, I gotta say I'm skeptical. So I headed to the Red Desert, about 40 miles outside of Rollins, Wyoming, to meet someone who has been fighting to protect sage-grouse for almost 20 years. And he's made some enemies in the process. Well, uh, you know, I am very much the skunk at the lawn party. I'm the bad cop. I'm the the bearer of bad tidings and and, and reality. Eric Mulvar's tall, bearded, and broad-shouldered. 
He looks like the kind of guy you'd run into at a hunting lodge in the Alaskan bush, rather than a city environmentalist Patagonia-wearing type, which is what I was expecting. He's a controversial figure in sagebrush country. He's the executive director of Western Watersheds Project, which is known as one of the most litigious environmental groups working in the West. I've talked to a lot of people working on the sage-grouse issue on all sides of the spectrum, from scientists and environmentalists to ranchers and oil and gas industry folks. And Eric and Western Watersheds have been described as a bit extreme and sometimes alienating in their tactics. By using litigation and, and the law as our primary tool, Western Watersheds Project and the groups like us and who have been aligned with us are doing more to protect the sage-grouse than any other type of group out there. So I was naturally curious to hear his thoughts on compromise when it comes to sage-grouse. For years, I believed that compromising is the only way to solve tough environmental problems. But Eric abandoned that notion years ago. Is he right? We camped together not far from his favorite sage-grouse lek in the Red Desert. Just miles and miles of open sagebrush all around us, dotted with a few oil pump jacks and abandoned homesteads. All right. And that first night we went out to the lek, which was really just a patch of open meadow in the sagebrush. There were no grouse there that evening. The birds gather first thing in the morning to do their mating dances and displays. I've never set one of these up. Are they pretty straightforward? Well, I can do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> we set up two blinds right in the middle of the meadow area so we'd have a hiding place to watch the birds when they arrived the next morning. Reasonably easy to set up and taking down Oh, sorry. Thanks. cast iron pain in the butt. <laughs> the blinds look like little camouflage confessional booth tents, sort of. They're just big enough for an adult to sit upright and peek out through these zipper mesh windows. This would give us front row seats for the mating activity closer than I'd ever been to these birds before in all my recording for this podcast. And we will get up at, at, at wee hours in the morning for the first glimmer of, of dawn. And we will be in these blinds and all ready to go, before the, hopefully before the sage grouse even show up. And then tomorrow morning they will come flying in. We'll be here at the lek with them, but they won't perceive us if all goes to, to plan. We finished setting up and headed back to camp to have dinner and talk. The sunset over the sage was rose gold and calm, and we sat together watching it. Eric's an interesting guy, and he speaks in a direct, blunt way, not unlike the way he works on behalf of sage-grouse, actually. While everybody is, is having sunny platitudes and trying to escape from reality, I'm trying to make everybody face reality, and that's politically unpopular, and that's okay. Because in conservation, there's a spectrum between popularity and effectiveness. And every inch you move toward popularity means ground you have to give up from effectiveness. And every time you move toward effectiveness, you sacrifice popularity. So you have to decide, do I want to be popular or do I want to do something to help the planet? And I made my decision. Eric's not much interested in compromise or negotiation. He says environmentalists, when it comes to issues involving big, moneyed interests like the oil and gas industry, often end up on the outside looking in. Suing is their main way to gain traction. Getting a bunch of different interests together to try to find common ground doesn't actually help the planet, from Eric's point of view. It just makes all the different parties feel good, and the sage-grouse end up losing out. And that's what you end up with in these collaborative groups because each different interest has a little intersection where they can meet and have a compromise. 
And when you have five or six of these different interest groups, that area of intersection is so tiny and so irrelevant from a conservation standpoint that what you can agree on isn't even worth pursuing. Do you think you're a fundamentalist? I'm just a pragmatist. I've just come to this realization of what works and what doesn't. You know, if, if collaboration actually worked, I'd be the first one on the bandwagon. Wow, interesting. Okay, so that's one way of looking at the role of compromise. Basically, that it's not worth wasting time or energy on it. Better to just fight it out in court. And sometimes going to court is what's necessary. Environmental groups, including Eric's, had to sue the government to get them to even consider this key question. Should sage grouse be listed under the Endangered Species Act? Now, in many parts of the rural West, the Endangered Species Act might as well be a four-letter word. It gets people really riled up. And it's become a bit of a lightning rod for tensions with the federal government. Basically, for some people out here, environmental protections and regulations mean government overreach into private property rights and individual freedoms. And if you're in the oil and gas industry, or you raise livestock in sage-grouse country, you do not want this bird listed, because it will mean a whole lot more government scrutiny of how you do business and more restrictions on how you can use public and privately owned land. So the looming threat of having the bird listed as endangered brought people to the table to hammer out a mega compromise that everyone in the sage-grouse world still talks about today. It was called the Greater Sage-Grouse Conservation Strategy. And I want to spend some time with this because it's central to answering this larger question I have about whether compromise works and is it worth it? Okay, so flashback to 2012. The Obama administration is wading into this question of whether the sage-grouse should be listed as endangered or not. And Jim Lyons is one of three key senior staffers at the Department of Interior tasked with figuring that out. Unfortunately, the secretary uh, referred to us in a speech one day as the three grouseketeers, which I hesitate to even repeat uh, on this recording, but it reflects how much time we spent working on this issue. Jim and his team worked with the governors and wildlife managers of 11 western states, as well as the Federal Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And over the next two years, they met regularly and wrestled with all the different competing interests in sagebrush country. The oil and gas industry pushed state leaders to give them more land for drilling. The livestock industry wanted more land for grazing. Environmentalists like Eric wanted stronger protections for the bird. Scientists like Matt Holleran provided data about important areas for sage-grouse. And sometimes all those interests were in conflict. But after months of hard conversations... I think we did reach agreement. Um, Jim said they were able to develop plans, state by state, that balanced sage-grouse habitat needs with human interests. And, ultimately, prevented the bird from being listed under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, much of it was controversial, but we worked together, worked hard to get there. But then there were some elements that the states um, didn't like. The plans limited mining, drilling, and grazing in some key areas for grouse. And the industries in several states made it clear they weren't pleased with those restrictions. Idaho sued the Department of the Interior. But they weren't the only ones who were unhappy. Eric Molvar with Western Watersheds Project and other conservation groups also sued, saying the plans didn't do enough to protect sage grouse. 
Scientists like Matt Holleran, who studies how oil and gas affects sage-grouse, you heard from him in the last episode at the Lek in Wyoming, also had some concerns about the plans. As scientists, we pointed out to the administration, okay, this is where we deviate from the science and we feel that you should be stronger here and stronger here and stronger here. But we also recognize that that there do have to be compromises because otherwise you won't get anything done. Maybe that's the sign of a good compromise, right? No one gets everything they want and everyone comes away less than satisfied. But keep in mind, this was better than nothing. Because before this compromise, there had only been piecemeal attempts at the state level to help the bird. Matt acknowledged that sometimes in a negotiation, you don't get everything you want up front. But he took solace in a key part of the plans. They called for follow-up. Yeah, every five years, we're checking right. back. Right. And there's there's all these programs that, that were set up in those 2015 plans. I mean, it's right there. Programs designed to monitor progress. You know, see how the plan is working. Great in theory, right? But what's really disappointing is, is from what I see, is the not following through on that assessment aspect of the 2015 plans. The, the follow-through has not been there, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. When I talked to Jim Lyons, he emphasized that too. That basically doing the follow-up monitoring after the plans went into effect in 2015 was critical to assessing if the plans actually worked and the grouse are hanging on, or if further regulations or protections are necessary. The Trump administration has so far failed to do the follow-up assessments. And Matt Holleran and 20 other scientists wrote a public letter to the Bureau of Land Management in protest. The administration has also attempted to weaken the plans and give more power to the states. Environmental groups like Eric Mulvar and Western Watersheds have sued to prevent that from happening. But it's an ongoing battle. I asked Jim Lyons about that. Why hadn't the 2015 plans he helped develop stuck? I guess what happens is it shakes my confidence in the role of compromise. Because it seems like you hammered out this amazing compromise, but it, it didn't have anything to, to force the follow-up so that it was immune to a subsequent administration that, or state activity that might try to unravel it. Well, I, I agree. And I'm concerned about that too. But, you know, compromise relies on the goodwill of all parties to follow through. And um, perhaps it is more uh, a sign of the times and the polarization we see, but um, we're not seeing goodwill on the part of all parties in moving forward. And I, d- I don't know, um, you know how you backstop that. It leads to regulation. It leads to litigation. Since 2015, when the plans Jim Lyons and the Obama administration developed were finalized, sage-grouse populations have declined by 44% on average across the West. I'll say that again. There are 44% fewer sage-grouse in the West than there were when the Great Sage-Grouse Compromise was finalized in 2015. That stat is from research by some of the leading sage-grouse scientists in the West. So I keep returning to this question. Is compromise going to keep sage-grouse around? And that brings us back to Eric Mulvar with Western Watersheds Project. There's a spot. 
he traded in compromise for legal action a long time ago. And Eric's tactics feel extreme. Part of me doesn't want to believe that we have to be this polarized in order to do what needs to be done for sage grouse to survive. But the other part of me worries that the time for compromise has passed. It's still dark and below freezing when Eric parks about 200 yards from the lek, and we walk through the sagebrush as quietly as we can and zip ourselves into our blinds. We can only whisper from here on out so we don't disturb the birds. Eric is in the blind next to me, talking into a wireless microphone, so I can hear him, but he can't hear or see me. It's full dark, and the frost is sparkling in the moonlight. bigger males are chasing off the littler males, running really fast, it's comical, all puffed up. Now there's a male making a rush at a lesser competitor. Before Eric and I zipped ourselves into our respective blinds, I gave him a list of questions. The last one was, what do you wish your opponents understood about you?
with those industries bent on destroying western public lands for their own profits. I'm watching. When Eric said that, sitting in the blind next to him, I got chills. And I remember thinking, here is someone who, after years of attempted compromise, has been radicalized. But I can see how he got to this point. Compromise can't exist on its own. It needs to be backstopped, as Jim Lyons says, or enforced. And maybe that's where litigious, some might call them radical environmentalists like Eric, come in to hold us all accountable for this bird and what's happening to it. The truth is, it may take radical action to save these birds. It's up to us to decide what we're willing to sacrifice, what kind of compromises we can still make, and keep these birds around. Those frozen moments watching the birds in the Red Desert changed me somehow, broke me open. So in our next and final episode, we're going to go back there and spend a little more time. I've been numb for a long time. You can't be numb in the presence of animals like this. Wild, unadulterated, unapologetic. Beauty. But how do we keep caring in the face of more and more tragedy? In September, wildfires devastated the West, and the dwindling sage-grouse population in my home state of Washington may not be able to hang on for much longer. This was the largest lek in the county, and uh, it's right in the middle of oblivion, or Mordor, as somebody referred to it. Our final episode drops next week. I'm Ashley Ahern. I hope you'll join me. This podcast was edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound design is by Liza Yeager. The show is brought to you by Boise State Public Radio and the Mountain West News Bureau, with support from Lori and Paul Ahern. Grouse was produced in partnership with Bird Note Presents and was made possible with support from Jim and Birta Faulkner. 